listening to KHOL. This is a special bonus episode of Jackson Unpacked, our weekly podcast on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and the Mountain West. I'm news director Kyle Mackey. Coming up on today's show, an extended conversation with Superintendent of Grand Teton National Park, Chip Jenkins, who reflects on his first year on the job and his personal philosophy of public lands. First of all, I feel like I've won life's lottery. It is a dream job for me. And for many people in the National Park Service, uh, there is no better place. I got the chance to interview Jenkins about wildlife management and what he describes as, quote, the great experiment of national parks. We also talked about backcountry safety following the recent tragic death of 27-year-old Rad Spencer in the park. Superintendent Jenkins, thank you so much for joining us today on KHOL. Oh, thank you for the invitation to be here. We're excited to have you here. And you've been in this role as superintendent of Grand Teton National Park for a little over a year now. Yep, right about 13 months. So I'd love to start by asking you to reflect on, you know, your first 13 months in this job. Uh, what have you learned in that time? What have some of your biggest challenges been? How's it been going? Uh, it's been going great. Uh, part of it is because this is such a uh, unique and amazing uh, place. Uh, Grand Teton National Park, Jackson Hole, the greater Yellowstone ecosystem is, is truly a unique place. And it draws unique people here. And, and the combination of all of that in terms of the place and the people have made this actually a, a, a really wonderful experience so far. I am betting that your job as superintendent of Grand Teton National Park sounds like a dream job to a lot of people. But I'm sure it's also, you know, a lot more challenging than people might realize. And this hasn't been the easiest past year from the, for the park from record visitation to really high-profile missing persons cases like the Gabby Petito case um, to drought and other climate impacts. Uh, What has it been like to be in charge through all of these, you know, difficult situations? Well, first of all, I feel like I've won life's lottery. It is a dream job for me. And for many people in the National Park Service, uh, there is no better place to want to aspire to be in it. It really is an honor um, to be able to be here, to be able to work uh, for these resources and with these people is uh, is a career-defining experience. And yeah, there are challenges. That's part of the reason why it's a, a, a great place to work. I think what most people don't realize is uh, a national park is um, actually, it's a lot like a lot like a county in a rural state. Um, we have about 25,000 people that will visit the park on any given summer day. We run multiple wastewater treatment systems. We're responsible for the roads and plowing the roads. We have our own law enforcement program. We have our own structural fire program. We run our own park medics. We also have uh, education programs, and we have IT and finance and budget, uh, uh, as well as also needing to... to uh, work with uh, dangerous animals like grizzly bears and bison. Uh, so um, it, is a, it is a multifaceted uh, organization with incredibly talented and dedicated people. Uh, and that's why it's a great place to work. Yeah, I like that metaphor of the park as kind of its own city or county. Yeah, that's pretty amazing to think about. Yeah, it is. It it is a lot like uh, a municipality, uh, including also you know we have, uh, you know we have our own housing. Uh, uh, we have a daycare. 
um, you know, all, all of the things that you uh, find in the community uh, or almost all the things you find in the community, right? We need to uh, take, uh, w- we need to provide that in the park as well as also uh, welcoming people from all over the world to come and visit the place and enjoy the place. Well, um, just a few balls to keep in the air, right? <laughs> yeah, right. All right. I read a recent op-ed related to the bighorn sheep issue in the park, mm-hmm. um, this kind of tension between backcountry recreation and conservation, which we don't have to get into right now. But I wanted to ask you about this op-ed was kind of arguing that Americans should look at their public lands as a privilege and not necessarily as a right. But I know that's an incredibly controversial argument, and people have all kinds of opinions about public lands here in Jackson and across the West and across the country. So I wanted to ask you a bit about your kind of personal philosophy of, of public lands and, you know, how that's maybe evolved over your career in the Park Service. Yeah, I, well, I I would certainly frame it differently than that because it is, you know, the first word in it is public lands, right? And these lands belong to all Americans. And um, I would say as a, um, it is a uh, – one of the best things you can do in terms of right of ownership is – uh, is to be a steward, is to take care of it. Um, you know, if you uh, if you own a house or if you own property, um, or even just you know not even not even the sense of owning land, but if you own your other property, uh, you know whether it's a great pair of skis or an expensive mountain bike, you know, generally speaking, people care about it, right? You you take care of it. You um, you pay attention in terms of how you use it. You uh, you pay attention in terms of the condition that it is in. And I think that uh, the best thing that people can do is uh, they can pay attention to the condition of their public lands, whether it's Grand Teton or Yellowstone or any other um, part of our public lands. And, you know, part of that is, yes, we welcome people to come and visit. And I think uh, recreating responsibly, being able to take care of the land uh, when you come and visit is one of the, um, you know, is, is what we need people to do, right? To be, to be responsible owners of their public lands. I wonder how you think that um, the relationship in, in Jackson with the Jackson Hole community to, you know, our surrounding public lands, we're surrounded on all sides, right, by national forests, national park, et cetera. Um, is that sort of relationship any different than your experience at past parks? Um, you were also superintendent at Mount Rainier before coming to Grand Teton and North Cascades. I know you've worked at several other, you know, huge iconic parks across the West. So I just wonder, you know, how you find the kind of community relationship here in Jackson with the park uh, versus some of the other ones that you've worked at. Sure. There there are things that are really unique. There are also things that are are, are similar to uh, uh, some other places. Actually, it was funny as you were as you were going through and framing that question. The the place that came to mind that I worked earlier in my career is a a place called Santa Monica Mountains National Recreation Area, which is on the Los Angeles and Ventura County line. Actually, the entire town of Malibu um, is actually inside the National Recreation Area boundary. Um, it uh, it butts up against Beverly Hills. We actually had a a range who had the Beverly Hills uh, uh, mailing address from their, you know, from their ranger station. And so I just use that as a comparison in terms of the sense that we have, um, just like here in Jackson, we have, um, we have people who are, love the outdoors, love to be able to recreate, love uh, to be able to see wildlife. Um, they also have means, uh, uh, that whether it's financial means or the ability to exercise political influence. 
It, and I would say in many respects, that's a blessing for Grand Teton. I mean, Grand Teton National Park is what it is in large part because of the uh, constructive relationship between the community and the park. I mean, if you think about it, it was um, almost 100 years ago where it was a collection of citizens together um, with Horace Albright, the superintendent of Yellowstone, that got together and and came up with the idea that maybe the mountain range needed to be protected as a national park. And uh, that was the first iteration of the park. And then over the last hundred years, it's gone through several different um, changes, expansions, um, as uh, together the community has decided that additional protections were needed. And people stepped forward, most notably, of course, the Rockefellers, but then actually hundreds of other people who have uh, participated in helping to uh, preserve and conserve these uh, these lands. And yes, it's um, there are the lands that are within the national park, but also we exist as part of a larger ecosystem. You know, I mean, if you if you care about elk or care about pronghorn and moose and grizzly bears and being able to see those on the landscape, it is this larger complex jurisdiction. Uh, a complex set of jurisdictions um, mixed together with private property that allows this intact ecosystem to function. It's a pretty, you know, and that is um, internationally significant in terms of the work that continues to go on here to ensure the, the preservation of this place. In terms of the overlapping jurisdictions that you just mentioned, um, I wonder how the parks, uh, you know, within the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, so including, you know, Yellowstone National Park. There's been a lot of kind of back and forth and um, changing status uh, and requests of certain wildlife management in, the, in you know, in the past several months and years. Um, we just saw gray wolves, for example, get protected through much of the rest of the country again, but not within the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. You know, there are pending requests from Montana and Wyoming to delist grizzly bears, you know, from federal protections. Where do the parks come into that? You know, what are your relationships like with the state? Um, you know, for actually, let me come at that from a you know a little bit of a different angle, if you don't mind. Which is like part of it is I think what what most people don't realize is national parks and protected areas. It's a giant experiment. You know, I mean, uh, it was not that long ago that as part of the experiment, what we thought we would was important is to um, remove all predators. Um, what was thought as part of that experiment was to feed bears at garbage dumps, right? Uh, what was thought as part of that experiment was to suppress all wildfires um, uh, and to take uh, or to introduce non-native species um, onto the landscape, right? So we are we are still engaged in this experiment. And um, how the experiment has evolved over the last several decades has been a, an emphasis in terms of restoring native species on the landscape. And actually, in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, actually, with a tremendous degree of success. I mean, grizzly bear, grizzly bear populations have greatly increased, both in numbers and in geographic extent. It, it's, it's, um, you know, it's, it, we joke a bit that 10, 15 years ago when people came to Grand Teton and said, hey, we want to see a grizzly bear, what the park rangers did was say, drive through the south entrance of Yellowstone and head north and you'll be able to see them up there, right? Now we are living with grizzly bears on a daily basis um, here, um, uh, similar with wolves. Uh, you know, I, I think we, we, we in the National Park Service, we exist in a legal framework. Uh, we exist in a framework where 
the federal government has certain laws and regulations that we are charged with uh, managing and the states are charged with uh, with managing. And we have a pretty collaborative relationship with Wyoming Game and Fish and the state on uh, mutual conservation. And it has been that productive relationship that has allowed actually the grizzly bear population to recover, that has allowed the wolf uh, population to recover, uh, and that we continue to work on uh, the recovery and the maintenance of, of other populations. Yes, there are policy disagreements. Yes, there are uh, disagreements, you know, amongst uh, uh, different stakeholders in terms of uh, the specifics of how a population should be managed. I also think that we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that it's through the collaboration that, you know, we now live with grizzly bears in Jackson Hole. Um, you know, uh, we now live with wolves in, uh, in Jackson Hole. That's an enormous conservation success story that we should all celebrate. Thank you for sharing that. It's, it is amazing to think about this as a big ongoing experiment that's mm -hmm. actually not too old in the grand scheme of things. Um, okay, getting back to sort of human recreation in the park, one thing I've heard from people in the park service is that it's not our job to tell people how to recreate on their public lands. Um, but people can also get themselves into dangerous situations on public lands. Um, you know, sadly, we just had a death in the park on Sunday. This 27-year-old Jackson man um, died while skiing the Apocalypse Kular. So people have been really getting after it, we know, during this long, high-pressure, unusually long, high-pressure period, I should say. Um, and I wonder, you know, how you kind of grapple with the park's role in terms of people's backcountry recreation. You know, Part of the reason that the park is here is, is is for people to be able to seek inspiration in whatever ways they find it that's that's consistent with preservation of the resources, right? And there is a long established, you know, well before the National Park Service of uh, of people uh, challenging themselves emotionally, uh, mentally, physically uh, through through their interactions with, you know, with, with the environment and with the ecosystem. And that's, you know, that is part of the purpose of, um, of national parks, provided that when that's done, it's done in a way that uh, does not harm uh, the resource, does not harm other, other people. You know, our heart certainly goes out to Rad's uh, family and uh, 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 friends, right? I, I know that he was connected in this community in ways that I don't fully appreciate, but that, um, that you know, but that that is a, a, a tragedy. Um, I think also we do ask people, though, to recreate responsibly and that part of that is really making choices while they making choices that don't put other people at risk, right? And we do find ourselves in the situation that when people get into trouble, uh, we work really closely with Teton County Search and Rescue as well as our own uh, rangers uh, where, where when we can, we go out and try to, you know, help people when they are in distress. You know, the reality is, too, that for the um, high-profile um, accidents that happen like this week, what we also faced this last year is that we had three, over 300 medical calls in the park. The vast majority of those were actually people within a mile or two of the trailhead who were suffering um, from heat exhaustion or from uh, uh, simple twists and falls. People who um, far less skilled and maybe far less prepared uh, for even taking a short walk in the park. 
And I think that that's actually where we are concentrating most of our efforts is we appreciate the high-skilled, highly talented folks who are feeding their soul through, you know, uh, through challenging skiing and mountaineering terrain. I think where, where we are more focused is on uh, more of the average tourist who may be here and don't realize they're at 6,500 feet and the intensity of the sun and, you know, and how they can have a, a safe visit without having to call one of the park medics. Well, talking about tourism, um, I wanted to ask you about how you're looking forward to next summer. Uh, we're seeing more and more parks, including Grand Teton, move to more, you know, online reservations for things like campgrounds. Um, you know, I just wonder how the park is gearing up for what is sure to be another busy peak summer tourism season. Yeah, it's r- right. It's really kind of funny. We're sitting here in the middle of uh, middle of February, and we actually have. Um, uh, every year we hire about 200 summer employees and we are, uh, you know, our supervisors are smack in the middle right now of uh, making job offers uh, for uh, for the summer. And uh, actually, we had a senior leadership team conversation this morning and we were talking about what does uh, our spring opening, what's it look like? We start plowing the park road on the 13th of March. And, uh, you know, when do we uh, how do we start phasing uh, opening up our seasonal housing uh, later on in April? And uh, what's our uh, safety training look like in early May? Uh, so we are actually feeling the gravitational pull towards uh, towards the summer season and getting uh, uh, getting ready for that. I think you know it's um, after two years of the pandemic, we're not quite sure what to expect this summer. Um, I think we are uh, we are expecting that we're going to continue to see high levels of visitation. I mean, you know, people have uh, people are enjoying their public lands, and I think that there are. Uh, many communities that maybe previously had not felt welcome on public lands that in the last several decades we've been inviting them to come. And in the last several years, they've been testing whether or not that invitation is sincere. And they are uh, – I think we're optimistic that we're going to continue to see uh, see folks who may be new to public lands coming and, uh, coming and visiting. Having said all of that is, yeah, the – you know the ecosystem is changing just as grizzly bears have expanded in their range um how people are visiting the numbers of people that are visiting what they are doing um one of the things that we've started to i i think just ourselves have realized that we need to talk about in terms of visitation it's not like a thermometer where it's very easy to be focused on just what's the number is the number going up or is it plateaued it's more like a balloon um because as as visitation increases it occupies space in a really different way, right? It, it, there is um, not just the space in terms of where people are or parking, but it's also we have more trash to pick up. We have human waste to deal with. We have more bathrooms to clean. We have more people who are um, uh, uh, writing us emails and asking for information. Um, there's a greater demand for us being able to provide information via social media and our uh, electronically. Uh, uh, and so it's um, the uh, increasing visitation is uh, putting pressure on us in terms of being able to meet how that that three dimensional need um, uh, in in really really different ways. Uh, we're trying to respond. Um, the park actually has a uh, long track record of actively uh, managing visitation in the park. Right, we. For virtually every overnight accommodation, whether you're staying at the lodge uh, or you're staying at the campground, you need to get a 
reservation. Um, backcountry permits. Uh, also, similarly, you can get most of those in advance as well as uh, first come, first serve. Uh, the the Rockefeller Reserve, we managed to a carrying capacity that was set, and that carrying capacity is tied to the size of the parking lot. Uh, similarly, the experience at String Lake, we have a carrying capacity for that area that is also tied to the parking lot, and we actively manage those two places. There are other places in the park, like the Lupin Trailhead, the Jenny Lake Trailhead, um, where, at least not yet, we've not taken steps to actively uh, actively manage that. We're you know, we're evaluating. We're evaluating what the quality of the experience is. We're evaluating what the impact of the resources are. We're eva- um, uh, we're ga- <clears throat> we've been doing a variety of uh, studies that we launched last summer. We're going to continue to be gathering data this uh, this year. Um, and and frankly, where we are right now is we're um, we're just trying to bring clarity to um, do we have problems? Exactly what is the problem? And then working with the community, is there agreement that that is a problem that needs to be solved? We're really focused on that right now before start talking about what solutions might be. I'm glad you mentioned that study. I do remember talking to mm-hmm. park officials last year when that data was starting to be collected yeah. and doing trail counts and stuff like that. Um, I believe the goal was to kind of better understand this changing nature of the park visitor. Do you have any early results from that or takeaways or it's still like in data collection mode? It, it, it's actually an analysis mode. So it, uh, we actually had a number of different studies going on. One is uh, uh, for the first time, bar- the park did a park-wide uh, mobility study where what we're trying to do is understand where people are coming from. And I mean, where are people coming from from a large geographic region? Uh, where do they come from? How do they arrive at the park? How long do they spend at different places? Where do they go as a second, third, fourth place? Uh, you know, really how how people uh, move about the park. We also were doing more detailed studies at Coulter Bay, um, Lupin, Taggart uh, trailheads. Uh, we're really trying to dig on, dig in on social science of what the quality of the experience that people were having and how people were, were um, reacting to uh, the numbers of other visitors around. Uh, this coming summer, we're actually going to be doing a, a socioeconomic um, study where we're going to be looking at uh, the um, socioeconomic demographics right, of visitors, including how much they spend in the area, on what – um, what communities that they are coming from, what communities are not um, uh, coming from to visit the park. So all of that needs to get uh, – we're collecting a lot of data. And then part of what is going to need to happen here is that we're going to need to be able to extract knowledge um, from that data. And we look forward to being able to share the results of the of, of the studies uh, later this spring and early summer with the community and then engaging in conversations with folks for us all to be able to learn more together. Great. Well, we will be really excited to see the results of those studies. Is there anything else that you'd like to share today with KHOL listeners? Anything else you'd like the community to know? I think um, one thing I would like to touch on is, uh, you know, as we we roll into spring, into April and May, we are going to start having grizzly bears emerge from their dens. And uh, and as I said earlier, right, we are um, – we now live in a time – uh, where grizzly bears are not transient, it's not on their way through someplace else, but they actually live here in Jackson Hole. And they are trying to figure out how to make their living. Um, and if we want to continue to uh, coexist with wildlife in the community here, whether it's grizzly bears or moose or elk or others, 
I think we need to continue to learn how we need to modify our behaviors in order to be able to coexist. Um, and I think it's uh, as we head towards summer uh, and as we head towards the animals starting to become more active and starting to move around um, Jackson Hole, just really, really looking forward to uh, working with the county, working with uh, nonprofit organizations, with the Forest Service, with Wyoming Game and Fish, uh, to continue to explore the steps that we can take together to be stewards of this magical place so that we can all continue to um, uh, enjoy the benefits of the wildlife being here. Well, thank you again, Superintendent Jenkins, for joining us today on Cage Well. We really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for the opportunity to be here, and we appreciate everybody tuning in. That's it for today on Jackson Unpacked. Original music for the show is by the local band Strumbucket. You can help us spread the word about Jackson Unpacked by leaving a rating and review for the show in Apple Podcasts. I'm Kyle Mackey, and this is KHOL Jackson. <laughs>